Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. One of our top stories, the president's latest Fed nominee, Stephen Moore, continues to call for the central bank to reverse course. According to the New York Times, Mr. Moore defended his view that the Fed was wrong to raise interest rates in September and December. He said the Fed should immediately reverse course and cut rates by half a percentage point. To discuss on the phone, joining us now, Alan Zentner, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist. What do you make of that, Alan? The latest call from the latest Fed nominee. Well, I think it echoes uh, sentiment, um, you know, almost widely held across the street that it, that I don't know about September as well, but that the Fed might not um, have needed to hike uh, in December. Uh, and so I don't think it's unusual to, uh, you know, add his voice to those saying that the Fed may have made a mistake. But expecting the Fed to just take a look back where they're sitting right now and say, ah, we went 50 basis too far, let's cut. You know, that's really, um, it, it suggests that there's an exact science to this. The Fed feels pretty comfortable that we're somewhere right around neutral. I don't think you'd find anyone on the Fed that agrees with, with Stephen Moore's view that they should cut right now without a catalyst. Uh, by 50 basis points. What's your base case, Alan, for the year for the Federal Reserve as it goes on? So we don't count them out for the year. I mean, one thing that uh, – so we do have them hiking at the tail end of the year in December, so on hold for almost the entire year. One thing that I was really perplexed about in this latest uh, – Fed meeting is that they're, they're, I've never seen such a convoluted mess in, an, in a summary of economic projections table. I mean, you've got a Fed that's extraordinarily patient, that has now provided so much easing in financial conditions by moving to the sidelines and communicating it's stopping the runoff of its balance sheet, that essentially we've, we've done a rate cut. If you put financial conditions easing into Fed funds equivalent, it's worth a rate cut. And for that, their summary of economic projections show that growth continues to deteriorate over the next couple of years. Where is the benefit to this patient policy? It should be showing up by lifting their forecasts, not depressing their forecasts now that they've moved to the side. I think it ignores the fact that they've provided a a powerful amount of, of easing, which should help the economic backdrop. Ellen, good morning. Wonderful to speak morning, to you uh, uh, this morning. Um, I, I, I look, Ellen, it, it, within the Stephen Moore, the Neil Irwin Cankersley piece in the New York Times, it, Mr. Moore's, and it, there's been ever-changing theories for Moore, but he's basically going back to early Marxism, which is to found some form of financial system or monetary policy off commodity pricing, which I find, you know, my my quick take on it, is almost early Marxist. Is there any modern history of using commodity prices to judge what we do with our economy and jobs and inflation? No, I just think that it's it's been well proven for many decades now that uh, – that's too volatile of a measure. I mean, if you're, you know, the your job as a central banker is to keep the economy on steady keel, uh, low volatility, 
um, helps the, the expansion last for longer. I mean, tying something to commodity prices, we've learned was the wrong way to go quite some time ago. Um, and so it's quite an antiquated <sighs> view at, at yeah. this point, and he's certainly an outlier. Well, it, but it's a nostalgia that President Trump seems extremely comfortable with to get back to something that's not only pre-1912, but borders on, you know, I don't even want to give it, you know, you know, folks, not to turn this into an academic lecture, but it's pre-Leon Walrus of general equilibrium theory. It's like back to Thomas Sowell's take on the early classicist economists. Is that what the president and what Stephen Moore want? Uh, you know, I, I I don't really know. I mean, I don't know why they would propose these policies unless... Because they're comfortable uh, with a mercantilistic thought pre-Valrassian, right? Right. But also, you know, you're, you're being advised by people that are probably old enough to have practiced economics at that time. So I think it's just... <laughs> I, I think I mean, that, that that's where some of these antiquated views come I mean, from. I mean, I mean, Ellen, you got to see it. I wish you were here in our, our wonderful Interactive Broker Studios. John Farrow is shaking his head going, what are they talking about? Megden Desai, John, just wrote a beautiful book, my book of the summer two years ago, on the, the, the difficulties that modern economists like Zentner have on equilibrium of finding I where know, supply Mr. meets Desai demand. I very well. I just didn't realize we'd start speaking Greek six minutes into the show. No, we were spe- <laughs> but, but, but Alan, this is critical in that we have a president comfortable with a neo or pseudo mercantilism that's pre the modern age, right? Right. But, you know, in terms of the, the Fed policy, lucky, luckily they don't share that same sentiment. And you know, let's let's. I, I don't believe the odds are very high that you confirm Stephen Moore to the board. But let's say he is confirmed to the board. Well, you could try to, you know, put lipstick on a pig, so to speak, and say, well, look, he's going to be another um, source of diversity. Diversity of views is important, um, and he can drive an agenda of his own to try to talk through these uh, uh, measures and changes at the Fed, and certainly. Chair Powell has shown that he is completely open to discussing everything about how they implement monetary policy. And so leave it open for debate, but it's not something that they're all going to come to consensus on. And I, I don't I believe that the people have also taken this too far to assume that because Stephen Moore has said the Fed should cut by 50 basis points, yeah. that if he gets onto the board, uh, that he would that they would imme- immediately cut rates. Cutting rates is not out of the realm of possibility. When you're at neutral, right. th- there should be an equal probability your next move is up or down. But it won't be because Stephen Moore right. joined the board and said we should cut. It will be because economic conditions warrant it. And John, next next uh, I think it's next week we have booked John Stuart Mill will join us on the corn laws. Is that right? Yes. Is that right? We're going to go way back. <laughs> Ellen, thank you. Ellen Zetner. Ellen, Stanley, thank you so much. Chief U.S. Economist. How am I meant to come back from this? I'm trying not to insert my opinion into this, but I mean, oh, you I'm talking, think? we're talking early Marxists. Is, is that you trying? I'm trying. I, I, <laughs> Believe me, no, one's, no one knows what your opinion no, to is Ellen's, after that. To Ellen's point, Stephen Moore may or may not, not get nominated to the Fed. If he gets nominated to the Fed, he's going to have a very difficult time getting the rest of the committee to come round to his view. Yeah, I think we understand that. At least the way he explains his ultimate objective. I actually think the committee may well come round to the idea that they might need to cut rates pretty quickly. The market's coming round to that idea, Tom. The bond market's had a massive move over the last couple of weeks, and it's stunning to see the front end of the yield curve and yields grind lower once again today.
is Wednesday. Wednesday's always a critical day for John Farrow's The Real Yield, where John has to decide of the hours of planning that have gone in the early week. Do they stay with it? Or does he blow up the show? And John Tucker and I can see in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios the tension He's of deciding He's on the cusp. I'm blowing up the show. Yeah. On the, it's like the Geico commercial. Wednesday, you know, the whole Wednesday thing? Hump day? Well, the hump day for this you in the real This show's easy. This show this I Friday's understand. easy. Okay, it's so easy, much to talk about. But we brought in a guest who can help you drive for your decision-making. Some structuring sometimes, the real Sometimes she graces us with her presence. She does. On Real Yield 2 and often on Bloomberg Surveillance, Priya Misra, TD Securities Head of Global Race Strategy. Good morning to you, Priya. Looking at your latest hi, comments. Hi, hi, John. The rates market is too pessimistic. I love the show. Thank you. Which, excuse me. Thank you. Which Thank show? you, Priya. <laughs> which, which show, They're Priya? The Real Yield Show. I mean, I think we need more people need to be talking about fixed income, so I'm glad you do that. Thanks, Priya. Appreciate that. Continue. No, I'm going to continue. Okay. I just wanted to look at your face for a little bit. The rates market is too pessimistic about the outlook. That's your take, Priya. Why? Uh, you know, we're pricing in now more than one uh, 25 base points ease this year. So we're pricing in a little over 30 base points of cuts. Um, I think, you know, the Fed was extremely dovish last week. I actually think that's changing the narrative a little bit here. We're going away from, or we're moving away from the market pricing in this you know, dovish Fed, Goldilocks, uh, you know, carry trades, equity should do well. To now, I think the fear is what does the Fed know that we don't know? Is the cycle, has the cycle ended? Are we heading into a recession? I think over the last week, if you look at price action and fixed income, I would even look at risk assets. And it doesn't look like Goldilocks is getting priced in again. I think now we're talking about, you know, is, is, is a recession around the corner? And I think with the market, the reason I think the market's still too pessimistic is you look at the fundamentals of U.S. growth. Now, we do have a lot of payroll data. We're going to get the first look at March data in the next couple of weeks. I don't think we're falling off a cliff here. And so to price and eases, I think the threshold is high. Growth needs to be closer to zero. We're forecasting above 2% GDP for this year, slower than last year. But, you know, I think there's this talk of recession and eases. I think it's the market reading from the dovish Fed. I, I just don't think we've had data that suggests that the U.S. is slowing that materially. Priya, there are so many conflicting signals in the global bond market right now, and I'm struggling to understand whether this is just a massive monster reach for yield or whether it is a market that's shifted aggressively towards risk aversion. Because if you look at what's happening in the credit market with spreads right. still tight and with treasuries rallying, bonds rallying, but bond markets outside of core government bond markets doing pretty terrifically as well kind of makes me think that this is just a global reach for yield at the same time as the rates market is pricing in a rate cut um it's difficult to reconcile some of these things priya right no i I think you raise a good point i think the rates market has made that leap now from just to reach for yield and i i I do think that was part of the move i think we've had a lot of convexity hedging flows but again the, the you know to your point pricing in eases is not really an extension right. of the cycle. So I would think that the risk asset complex is, is only now starting to price in that if we are heading into a recession, risk premium okay. is too low in credit. Let's unpack the jargon. Convexity hedging. What is that? 
uh, fair point. It, it is, uh, you know, this technical term that we use in the bond market. So essentially, if you are a mortgage investor yeah. uh, and, and, and you hold a bunch of mortgages, interest rates, when they fall too much, your mortgage duration shortens. Right. Now, if you want to keep a certain, uh, a certain duration of your portfolio, you have to go and buy treasuries. And I think that has been a part of the move okay. in the last So week, we've had the we move and we've had some of these pro-dynamics and pro-choices, which are price up yield lower but are you suggesting that then the bigger picture clicks in and we have even more price up and yield lower right so i think convexity typically does not trigger a move so the move was triggered i would say by the dovish fed Uh, this dovish fed and this fear of a recession i think that took rates to uh, below their lows for the year then that brings in convexity. But convexity, so I would say it's, it's a technical flow. It's, it's a reach for yield in a short period of time. People hedge. Then it goes back to fundamentals. I mean, we have a lot of Fed speak. Yeah. I don't hear any of them saying that they're about to ease. So I think fundamentals will ultimately matter once we you know, get this convexity flow behind us. So I would say there's two basic phases here, Tom. So we've had the first phase, which essentially is a monster reach for yield. Treasury yields go lower. Bund yields go lower. Credit spreads tighten up. Even the likes of BTPs rally Italian and bond yields come in as well. And then we face the prospect of a market looking at the likelihood of a rate cut. And this is where two things become very hard to reconcile. If you believe a rate cut is around the corner, that is not an environment where the risk assets perform well. You can't have an environment where the Fed needs to cut, where also simultaneously that credit spreads are going to be tight. So you need to reconcile those two things, which one breaks. So you go into phase two. Phase two essentially is credit spreads start to widen or you start to price out the rate cut. One or the other. Something has to give. The question is which. Priya, which one do you think gives? I'm more in the camp that uh, interest rates have become a little bit, uh, uh, you know, too pessimistic. So I think if, if the data suggests that actually the economy is growing at, you know, one and three quarters, two percent, it takes out the reason for the Fed to hike, but it also does not provide a reason for the Fed to ease. So I do think uh, interest rates have some room to rise. Now, if the data all falls apart, then, you know, I, I would agree. I, I think then the rate market may be pricing this in fine, but then risk assets yeah. look a lot more vulnerable. John, uh, January of this year was a 199 two-year yield, roughly. You know, just a quick look at the chart. I mean, we're getting back there rapidly. We're taking out some yeah. of the rate hikes from yeah. the Fed. Priya, what does this mean away from full faith and credit? How does the full faith and credit German 10-year, the U.S. two-year, how does it redound over to the corporate bond space? I think, uh, you know, particularly when you look at U.S. front-end yields, they're actually pretty attractive on a real rate basis in terms of how much uh, return you get for the risk you're taking. So I actually think when uh, full faith and credit risk-free rates rise, and and they have in in the U.S. and the front-end, that actually provides a pretty viable hiding place for credit investors. So if I'm a credit investor and I'm worried about a recession, maybe I should not be in, in a five-year credit piece of paper. I should be in three-month treasury bills, which is actually giving me higher yield than the 10-year treasury. So I think you do see these interesting fund flows right. from uh, fixed-income investors. When they start looking at risk-reward, doesn't look that attractive to take that much risk. Okay, so what economic data changes that difference in yield, the curve of the treasury bill to the treasury note the three months to the tenure what kind of economic data changes your world right i think it's forward-looking indicators of of u.s growth so i like ISM. manufacturing non-manufacturing yeah, right? ISM. i think that'll matter 
if it, if we're not heading into a recession, ISM is still at 54.55, let's say, right. then, I, you know, you should start pricing out some of these cuts. And so the front end can still stay very anchored, but the long end starts selling off. So you get well, that little bit of curve steepening. Priya Mizra, thank you so much. TD Securities, greatly appreciate Thanks, Priya. I understood about half that. Conference. Thank you for the support, I, Priya I, Mizra. You know. You want to bring in our esteemed guest? Absolutely. Um, you know, obviously, um, we are, are here at the Bloomberg Equality Summit broadcasting live from uh, the link at our world headquarters here in uh, Lexington Avenue and 59th Street. And we think about Hollywood. It's been said that Hollywood is one of the least welcoming industries for women. And I love this point that I think our guests made. Even the coal industry does a better job uh, dealing, <laughs> being accepting and supportive of women than does Hollywood. So to help us kind of dig through this issue, we welcome our, our guest, Maria Geis. She is a writer and director. Maria, thanks so much for joining us here at Bloomberg. How did it ever get so bad for women in Hollywood? What's the history there? Well, let's see. Let's start with what Hollywood does today. I mean, Hollywood pays out $7 billion in wages every year. It creates 80% of the media content that's distributed globally, and it helps form our cultural narrative through the stories that are told there. This is an incredibly powerful industry, and it's run by a very small group of mostly white liberal men. Um, the history of of Hollywood as told so beautifully in the film by Tom Donahue called This Changes Everything, right. screened here uh, last night, um, shows that in the pioneer days of, of Hollywood, which began in 1896 with the invention of the movie camera, the cinematograph, um, in, in invited women in. And there were lots and lots of women directors, writers, and producers uh, up until the big money came in. And as soon as the big Wall Street money came in, women got pushed out. So we really saw almost no women in the industry as storytellers from about 1930 until 1979, after the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the women's lib movement of the 1970s. And then we began to see some shift. So really, one can look at this as an economic issue, uh, a battle for resources. It's a patriarchy. Have, has the so to what extent has the Me Too? This is just recent history. To what extent has the Me Too movement? Do you think going going to impact Hollywood going forward? Because it seems well, to be the, the epicenter of the, uh, the Me Too. <laughs> the Me Too movement um, came in based on the work of the ACLU and the EEOC. So on October sixth, twenty fifteen, the EEOC, the Equal Rights. Um, Commission of the United States Department of Justice uh, started an investigation for women directors in Hollywood. And uh, two years later, almost to the day, on October 5th, 2017, the New York Times finally had right. Right. the cojones to publish the exposés on Harvey Weinstein, incidentally, that they had been holding on to since 2004 for 13 years. So when Hillary Clinton was, and the Clintons were no longer in power, and Trump was now in power, uh, the major media was emboldened to publish these stories. It was a watershed moment, there's no question about it, but I believe, you know, also right. a diversion <clears throat> because Hollywood has been able to use Me Too and the stories of sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace right. and actresses to um, control the narrative. 
and that's what they're doing. Because when you talk about equal employment opportunity law and the enforcement of title, federal enforcement right. of Title VII in Hollywood, you're talking about fundamentally right. a redistribution okay. of jobs from men to women. And that is something that Hollywood doesn't want. You, very quickly here, just because of time, you came out of UCLA, there's other combines of screenwriting and directing around the world. Out of Tish came Adam Bowden and Ryan Fleck, and they're doing Captain Marvel in, in that. Do women have to advance and succeed going from small movies and working up the food chime over, like you did, frankly, or can they jump in now at a higher level? Uh, basically, the way it stands right now, women directed, in 2013, women were directing 13% of episodic TV shows, 4% of studio features. So is it going to come and, through TV and, and through Amazon and Netflix no, and the rest no, of it? No, that fundamentally what is happening here is that women can work if they work for free. Women are doing the lower end of, the, it, it's, it's the exception. And it's what Jennifer the, the Lawrence said four years ago, she's sick of being adorable. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah. it's that simple. Yeah, that women need to demand their rights under our law. Do you see that changing over the grill at the Beverly Hills Hilton or, or at the Sunset Tower Hotel? Is the dynamic changing? Um, I think that there is a great deal of pressure right now on the industry. I think the federal investigation and the work of the ACLU rocked the industry to its core, and they're worried about lawsuits. And so um, they're going to move those numbers up through inside efforts, uh, but those right. will have not historically <clears throat> proven to be is, enduring. Is Disney Fox good for women? Is James Murdoch and the rest of them out there with Mr. Iger at, at Disney Fox and the new combination? Nobody's is good? good for women. Nobody is good for women. Yeah. All, all of these the organizations that make up Hollywood, including the unions, the talent agencies, the studios, and the networks, streaming giants, they all need to be challenged by, the, by, by illegal action. Is that coming? Is that forthcoming, do you think? Legal action? I, uh, my belief is because the EEOC has been um, conducting this investigation and perhaps has been in settlement talks for three years and yep. four months, six months almost, and we um, don't know what is going on with that because uh, they function in total confidentiality. However, we have been, a small group of us have been working very, very hard to move this into the court system, right. and I do believe that that is the necessary mm -hmm. thing. This needs to end up in the Supreme Court. Right. It sounds like uh, it sounds like pressure is uh, building. It sounds like the Me Too movement might might accelerate that. So very interesting. Maria Geis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you uh, so Maria much. Maria is a writer really and director. She joins us here talking about this equality issue in Hollywood, which, again, a very, very difficult place historically uh, for women to do well, even harder than the coal industry, believe it or not. But hopefully change is coming to Hollywood. time I should point out we haven't mentioned it much in West Texas back to $60 six zero dollars uh, a barrel with Brent crude on the edge of 70 this gets my attention $68 a barrel and Brent crude with us now Paul Sankey of Mizzou and what's incredibly important here folks is to realize that a decade or more ago the world stopped when Sankey and company at Deutsche Bank would put out a spreadsheet of supply and demand dynamics. And they were so influential, you'd go over every number of it. Mr. Sankey is uh, causing great advantage to Mizuho Americas, where he is their oil and gas analyst and a legend in his own time. Paul, wonderful to have you with us. 
ExxonMobil has returned 5% a year for the last 10 years. Why should I own a big oil blue chip? <laughs> Thanks for the intro, Tom. Uh, you always make me smile. Um, yeah, so why should you own a, a big blue chip? Well, why, why you shouldn't is the market's worried about technology. Uh, in fact, the market wants to own technology, rightly, for the future. And technology, of course, in theory, will lower oil demand and raise oil supply. So at face value, the answer is you shouldn't. But in reality, uh, as I was saying to you earlier on television with Bloomberg, uh, the fact is that oil demand is exceeding expectations and efficiency is not lowering demand in the way anticipated. So if the oil companies can get their act together and return cash to shareholders and pay the payout at the end of the oil age, which I think they will, I'm not sure about Exxon, we're neutral on the stock, but certainly in the case of Chevron, we can see a 10% plus cash return to shareholders on a sustained basis as achievable by Chevron at these kind of prices. So if we're in the 70 range, assuming that the industry has learned a new era of capital discipline, I think returns will be very good. And uh, that becomes the reason for owning these names. So, Paul, you know, one of the things, you know, Tom mentioned, uh you know, your legendary supply and demand models, and I know that you and uh, you know, all energy analysts you rely heavily on those types of models to give you a sense of where pricing is going. But one of the things that's always you know, challenged me is just kind of where does OPEC want oil to be? Uh, and that's the question. And kind of where, where do you think they are right now? Well, there's an interesting dynamic here. Firstly, Saudi for the first time is actually talking about a price range, which is $70 to $80 Brent. And as you say, we're knocking on the door of 70 today heading into driving season, so I think they'll achieve that number. The risk for us is that they actually lose control of the market on the upside, particularly if we get uh, Iranian sanctions late April. But one interesting dynamic uh, is firstly, Saudi is what matters the most, but we then have this new member of OPEC called Russia, and they actually, the companies there don't want such high oil prices. The tax regime there disincentivizes them from wanting super high prices because it tends to appreciate the ruble and increase their costs while they don't benefit from the, uh, the higher price because of the tax system. But what really matters ultimately is Saudi, and Saudi's staying 70 to 80. So what, when I think about um, the U.S. shale, I mean, the whole market, just over the last few years to this, you know, lay person myself, kind of looking at the energy space, it's really just totally changed with the advent of U.S. shale production. So there's a sense that this growing commitment in the U.S. to the development of the U.S. shale oil output does that suggest oil's lower for longer? It suggests that there's far, far more supply than would have been argued uh, in the 2000s. We were never uh, peak oil advocates in any way. We always said, look, you can crush coal at $150 a barrel. Uh, you know, it's ultimately everything is oil. Uh, but, but this new unlocking of technology is, is absolutely staggering. And you've got to keep in mind that the recovery rates in the Permian at the moment are around 12% of the oil in place. So the supply side looks uh, abundant, to say the least. And our argument, our bull argument, yeah. is, is based on the fact that we think demand continues to outstrip uh, right. the more negative view of efficiency gains and, t you know, what we call the Tesla effect. And the, the simple arithmetic of that is, uh, is wildly overstated by the market. The, rather, that's, well, that's where I wanted to go. Where is the dynamic right now? The dynamic right now for demand is it? Is it airplanes flying around in the sky? Is it just trucks and cars? I mean, where's that, that at the margin? Where is that demand dynamic? 
Well, it's distillate, and so that, that is that planes, mean? jet fuel. Distillate is, is diesel and, and jet fuel, essentially. 100 million people a year, according to Boeing, uh, take a plane for the first okay. time every year. So that continues to grow well. Um, uh, just at the on, time on we got left, Paul, Paul, I'm sure all of our listeners want to know this from Paul Sankey in the time we've got left. Somebody's also precious. If they've got money, they're driving a Tesla. <laughs> Paul Sweeney, what are they driving if they don't have money? Uh, maybe, maybe maybe they're Uber. Oh, an Uber, <laughs> whatever. But then they're taking their plane to London or their plane to Washington or their plane to O'Hare. How, what, what do you, how does a pro like you respond to a guy saving being green in an electric car when they're jetting around the world? Well, it's simple, simple arithmetic. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it, it, with a 16-year life cycle of an American car and the, and the current makeup of cars and, and trucks being sold, uh, there's almost no effect from electric vehicles for the next 15 years. It's, it's really marginal. As you say, Tesla is very much a luxury vehicle. Yeah. Everyone else is basically built, uh, buying gasoline-fired somewhat more efficient cars and, and, and less efficient trucks, but trucks that are far more yeah, efficient. Yeah, but every time can. I get on the shuttle to Washington, is it a gas guzzler? Am I burning up tons of oil? What, in a car or a plane? No, in a plane. Use, in a plane. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's no real potential for an electric plane at the moment. They are testing them, but it's pretty early days. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, the main thing is, is trucks and, and economic activity are all distillate diesel fired. Okay. And as long as that keeps coming. The other thing is, Tom, sheer weight of global population. It's still estimated still to go up. 30 to 50% of Chinese. Okay. Of Paul, we got to leave it there. Paul Sankey of Missoula Encyclopedic. Love to have him on. We'll do this again soon. Paul Sankey on oil. Now, a four-hour interview with Ida Liu of City <laughs> Private Bank as well. We're, we could start with Asia Fashion and Vivia Tam and how it's taken over the world. We could go to your work in mergers and acquisitions years ago. And I remember the Warner Lambert transaction, mm -hmm. among many others. We could move from this to what you're doing with Citigroup and the demands of high net worth. Or we could actually talk about Bloomberg's Equality Summit. That's right. Know. That's why we're here, Tom. Okay. So take it down to four minutes, and then we'll we'll go from there. So, Ida, just talk about, you know, one of the things about the um, this Equality Summit has been um, gender lens investing. Can you give yes. us a sense of what that is for investors and your clients? Absolutely, Paul. So what we've seen is a increased focus on feeling good investments, investments that are going to make a strong social impact. And one of those aspects is gender lens investing. Today, it's estimated that gender lens investing is roughly four and a half billion in private and public investment. And that has doubled in the last year. So we're on an upward trajectory, but it's still a very, very small amount. Um, however, there is a huge interest in it. Um, it, it you, you see that you can do great investments without giving up any of the well, returns. That's to go. I mean, you did yeah. Carl, at Wellesley College. I'm sure you studied with the great Carl Case, and he would have said, did. "He would have said, who were the facts?" <laughs> Chip Case would have said, "It's all great, touchy feely, wonder, wonder." Yes. But I know you have yes. done the sensitivity chart. Yes. And I don't mean equality sensitivity. I mean a yeah. sensitivity analysis yeah. Yeah. of whether this lens of investing yes. doesn't sacrifice profit, does it? 
It absolutely does not. In fact, it generates more alpha. It has been proven time and time again. How many again. basis points can I pick up? <laughs> well, you can pick up, which it shows that in public companies, women CEOs generate 50% more ROI than not. You see uh, companies that have women on the boards generating much greater returns over time. You see women in the technology sectors that get much less funding. 3% of venture capital funding goes to women, and yet they out perform in returns uh, of their male counterparts by 10%. These are just some of the facts. Uh, but no matter what, it goes to show that the diversity, uh, the gender <coughs> lens diversity, having diverse teams definitely outperforms. So it's an alpha and a feel-good investment. So how about when you sit down with your high net worth uh, clients at Citi, are they open to this type of investment or do you really have to prove it to them with numbers? So Paul, it's interesting because a lot of our investors are coming to us okay. and asking about ESG investments, yeah. impact investments. Environmental, so, sustainability. Sustain sustainability and governance. governance. Right. Um, and in addition to that, a lot of our clients, particularly our female clients, are very interested in gender lens investing. So we do that in a very customized format for our female clients. We look at the public and the private side. On the public side, we look at companies that have great representation of women on boards and management teams, diversity initiatives within the company. On the private okay. side, we look at investing into female startups, into microfinance loans for small businesses, uh, etc. It's okay. So uh, there's a, st I don't know if the chip case taught you this at Wellesley, there's an index that has 500 stocks in it. <laughs> How many of 500 <laughs> stocks of the Standard & Poor's Index are Idaloo are, are, are approved? I mean, I mean, seriously, out of 500 stocks, how many pass the ESG test? You know, at the moment, Six? it's less than, no, 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 it's about a third that okay, passed fair. the ESG okay. test. And by the way, there are plenty of other uh, portfolio management companies, indexes that have been launched since that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, many of them that focus particularly on what this What are the two-thirds, this is critical now, particularly at an institutional base like Citigroup, what are the two-thirds that are not ESG approved? Are they in a panic to become ESG approved? Tom, I would think that everyone is focused on being ESG uh, focused because, as I mentioned earlier, it drives returns. Yep. It's, it's good. It's a good thing to do. It drives yeah. returns. And uh, uh, I don't see why they wouldn't be more focused on doing that. Well, Ida, it's interesting. On the Bloomberg Terminal, one of the most highly hit functions is FA, financial analysis, where it does income statement, balance sheet analysis. And yeah, one ESG of the tabs function. is the yeah. ESG tab for yes, every company. Yes. And what does that mean? <laughs> and that just, we have a lot of statistics there that just helps Yes. Investors right. look at a company from exactly. an ESG perspective exactly. because it is becoming a bigger part. It you is. mentioned Silicon Valley, um, and th that three percent number is just staggering. It is staggering. And I mean, and I've heard that before. I've mm -hmm. heard that you know, as tough as Wall Street may be for mm -hmm. women, Silicon Valley is mm -hmm. even tougher. Mm -hmm. Are there any any efforts underway to try to change that at all? You know, I, I don't know about efforts per se, but we've had the huge Me Too movement. Yep. We've seen all of the um, efforts around a lot of companies like Citi who are putting out gender equality-based information. We, we are very proud to be part of the Bloomberg Gender Equality Index for the fourth year in a row. Right. Uh, we, we have uh, many things that we're working on in terms of disclosure representation. 50% uh, of our base is women. So we are doing the right things as a public company in the financial services sector. I've seen that happen a lot in the financial services sector. On the V, private yeah. equity side, 
they're they're coming along, okay. right? I think they're coming right. along. It's right. a little slower than we <laughs> than we, we would this. like. But my, my world stops when Mary Meeker puts out her 86-page PowerPoint yeah. every year. Whatever it is, I go over. Yep. I, 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 folks, I'm stupid about this. I go over every page of it with a pencil as well. What does a Mary Meeker, with all of her acclaim in Silicon Valley, think about the impatience to move this forward? I'm sure that Mary, and I can't speak for Mary, but I'm sure that Mary uh, can be frustrated about um, about the movement. But that's why we have uh, people like Mary and other women launching their own initiatives, looking at ways to invest in, right. in, in to help move forward the gender-based um, focus. Do you see within defined benefit and defined contribution pension plans a real desire for this? And where does the marginal move on your $4 trillion? Where does that marginal move go in the next five years? I certainly hope it, it goes very quickly, Tom, because um, that four, four, four and a half um, billion that we have today. Billion, excuse me. And, you know, hopefully we want it to, to increase exponentially. And the only way that we're going to do that is by further engagement. Well, not um, only engagement, but the alpha pickup is tangible. I mean, that's what yes, I've heard. It is. Yeah, more it is. and more, as, as uh, Ida mentioned, you know, the more and more the uh, research that comes out from academia and other places about diversity, about ESG, about yep. how the, it does have significant yep. return implications for investors, it can't be ignored anymore, I guess, is the point. Yeah, you and know. Paul, you know, if, if we did have gender equality today, that yeah. would add $28 trillion to global GDP can over the next it? five years. Oh, $28 trillion that's with global T. gender equality. Can we get Ida equality. What's that? Can we get Ida? Oh, sure. Yeah. Was yeah. Kraft Heinz on your list? <laughs> to, to, be, to be honest with you, I, I, I didn't look at Kraft Heinz well, it's particularly. It's Warren Buffett and all those guys, and they're being guys, yes, and the yes. testosterone's up, and they're building up the good. She's like, how can I get away from that? <laughs> right. No, 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 not at but all. But there's not that whole all. macho guy yeah. thing. But you know what, uh, Tom, also, that's a very different approach than what we do for our clients. So we, we aren't single stock pickers at all fair, for our clients. Fair. Okay, So yep. we, we are strategic asset allocators. We're active managers of our clients' assets, it, it, and, and we never pick single stocks. I In other words, we will put together together a group that makes sense. At 9.38 in the morning, we get a little punchy here <laughs> yeah. at Surveillance. We haven't had our When they let us out of the studio. Hi, Lulu. <laughs> thank you so much for City Private Bank here at the Bloomberg Equality Summit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.